Let's take a minute and pray together before we hear the scriptures. I'll be praying for our member Megan Iwan and her fiance Albert Rowan. They're getting married this afternoon. So you'll see me slip out a couple minutes early at the end so we can go get ready to tie a knot. And uh, so if you have opportunity this afternoon, you can pray for them. The rehearsal's at 2.30 and ceremony's at 5. If you don't remember today, you can pray for them the rest of the week too. Let's pray together. Jesus, I'm just stunned at this language that applies to you, so gracious and extreme. Those are not words that go together much in our world. Sometimes we think of gracious people as people without much backbone, people who would rarely have strong feelings about much of anything. And we think of extreme people as those who would well, be ready to fight on a moment's notice about anything in very unloving and harsh ways. And so in you, we see a combination of things that is so rare and lovely. And we ask that you would open our eyes to see more of you through the scriptures today. Lord, we do pray for Megan and Albert and ask that you be with them on this day that uh, any anxieties they might have would be put to rest. Would you be with your family and friends and would you bless not just the ceremony today, but their marriage that they may ex experience you as one who is gracious to them and whose love for them is so extreme that their love for each other doesn't have to hold their marriage together. It's held together by something bigger than either of them. Lord, open our hearts to know that love as we hear of you through the words of the Apostle Matthew now. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Several years ago in Provo, Utah, uh, a group of people got together hoping to break a world record, and they succeeded. I don't know if this record has been broken since then, but they put together the world's largest nativity scene, 1,039 people. There was a Jesus, there was a, a, a Joseph, a Mary, maybe some wise men and shepherds, but mostly it was angels, people dressed in white stuff coming out, standing on a hillside in a park to be angels. And um, I don't know that the Apostle Matthew would have objected to having a large number of angels present in a nativity scene, but I'm pretty sure he would have said, you left some people out. Was anybody there in the part of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Judah? He runs through this long genealogy, starting with Abraham and leading up to Jesus. The very first chapter of his gospel, Matthew, what are you thinking? Why start with a long list of names? And the answer is to make sense of life in this world, you need to know Jesus. And to make sense of Jesus, you need to start here. Well, to make sense of Matthew's genealogy, which James is going to read for us in just a moment, here's a few tools. First, number one, the focus of this gene genealogy is on the legal descent of, of the king who came from David's line. 
And so when we get to King David, we'll follow through David's son, Solomon. Now, David had many sons, and in another genealogy in Luke chapter 4, you go from David to a different son of David, following the biological line that connected David to Joseph and to Mary. But um, here we find a different approach because we're tracing the line of legal descent. God made a promise through Israel to the whole world that every nation would be blessed, and the king coming from David's line was the true heir to those promises for all of us. Who is that true heir? Matthew is answering that question for us, and the structure he's going to use is a pattern of three times 14, 14 generations, three times over. Why the number 14? Well, the word David has three letters in Hebrew. The letter we would call D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the letter we would call V is the sixth letter of the alphabet. And so it's three letters, D, V, D, 4, 6, 4, 14. So over and over again, Matthew is telling us, Jesus is the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. Why does that matter so much? We'll find out. Finally, you're going to notice another pattern. The basic pattern of this genealogy is blank was the father of blank. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, and so on and so forth. But several times, that pattern, that rhythm is going to be interrupted. And when that pattern is broken, it really matters. We won't have time to look at all of those this morning, but a couple of them we'll, we'll drill into pretty deeply and say, hmm, what is Matthew telling us about Jesus that this pattern and the genealogy gets disrupted. All right, those are the tools we need to understand, but now we need to hear the Scriptures. James? Scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, 
all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To start learning some things, you have to forget everything you think you know. You're coming in to the learning process with a lot of assumptions, and they're wrong. They're going to hurt more than help. Um, I remember starting Hebrew classes in seminary, right? And you find out pretty quickly that uh, if you show up going, oh, I studied a foreign language before. I got this. Well, tell me about that language you studied. Was it a Western language? Yeah. Uh, you forget everything you know, right? And so you, you, you start learning that, that books open from what we would call the back, right? That, that this is the front of, of the Hebrew Bible. And then when you open it, you, you read from right to left instead of left to right. And, and the alphabet is like something you've never seen before. And so there's this kind of unlearning process that has to happen. All the assumptions you think apply, you have to forget them in order to really learn. Um, we have to do that with knowing Jesus. To, today, I want to use the genealogy Matthew has given us to help us unlearn some of the assumptions that we make about who Jesus is and what it means to know him and what life in this world is like. We'll start here. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is God's guarantee for human flourishing. We're going to have to forget some things we think we know in order to learn this. But let's start there. Jesus is God's guarantee for human flourishing for all of creation. How would we know that? Well, we start with verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Literally, the word translated genealogy here in the ESV is the Greek word genesis. This is the book of Genesis. Wait a minute. There's a book of Genesis already in our Bibles, right? Yeah, in the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the very first one. It starts right here. <laughs> um, this is the book of Genesis. Matthew is telling us there's a second start for the whole universe about to happen. When Jesus is born, it will be the new beginning for everything. Because the first go-round... Well, God's people drifted away from him. Creatures made in God's image, instead of honoring him as king and life giver, said, you know what? We can do life better without you. We would rather rule over ourselves than have you rule over us. We would rather rule over our neighbors than to have you and your love rule over all of us together. And so there's a new start for the whole of creation. God has made promises about human flourishing. He has made them to every nation on the face of the earth, and he made them through the nation of Israel. That's why, that's why we begin with this reference to Abraham in verse 1. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Now we know already, reading this language about sun, that, uh, that this is not literal biological language, right? David lived a thousand years before Jesus, so son here means descendant, just like father isn't always going to mean in this genealogy immediate biological ancestor, right? In, in many genealogies, these words are used in a flexible way. But why mention Abraham at all? Well, it's to remind us of promises given in the book of Genesis to Abraham, promises like this. You'd find it in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Genesis chapter 26, verse 4. In you, Abraham, and in your offspring, all nations will be blessed. A descendant will come from you, Abraham, one of your offspring. And through that descendant, all nations will find the goodness of God. I thought we lost that goodness back when we left God's ways in Genesis chapter 3. But here's God saying in Genesis 22 and 26, there's a way back to my goodness and it's going to be through one of your descendants. Abraham, through you and through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. So here's this promise a way back to God's goodness and flourishing for every nation, for the whole world, given through Israel, the promise of what? A promise that God would establish peace and justice and prosperity forever. How do we know that? Well, that's why Matthew mentions David so often in this genealogy. Jesus Christ, the son of David, verse 1 says, David is mentioned again in verse 6, and notice the departure from the pattern. Blank was the father of blank. Verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king. Oh, the king. The king. David's the king. Why do we need to know that? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to David, I will raise up your offspring, a descendant, after you. I will establish his kingdom Verse 13 says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, same chapter, 2 Samuel 7. It's known as the Davidic covenant. Your throne shall be established forever. Why is that good news? Well, we need to know something about this king. What, what did God intend the rule of the king descended from David, to be like. If you forget every, every other commentary on that from the Old Testament, remember this one place, Psalm 72. If, if you want to know what it means to be the anointed king, remember the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, Messiah, Christ. If you want to know what the Christ is going to be like, if you want to know why it's important that Jesus Christ is king, Go to Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verse 17 says this. May his name, the name of this king, this Messiah, endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Remember that promise to Abraham? That all nations would be blessed through one of his descendants? Well, that descendant is also going to be from the line of David, 
the anointed king, the Messiah. And what will it be like when this Messiah, this Christ, reigns? Listen to the first few verses of that psalm. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Verse 12, he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may this kind of king live. That's what the psalm says. Long may he live. Why? Because through this king, peace and justice and prosperity will be established forever. The mountains and the hills will be dripping with prosperity and goodness. Jesus is God's guarantee that this plan for human flourishing will become a reality. And this is where we have to unlearn some assumptions. In our world, we tend to assume that spiritual or religious truth is for a very small part of life. We tend to divide the world up. This is sort of post-Enlightenment Western Culture 101. Since the Enlightenment, we have tended to divide the world up into categories of sacred and secular. And we assume that religious or spiritual truth has to do with this very small category of sacred stuff, while secular stuff is governed by reason. Rationality, thinking, science, facts. While over here in this little tiny area called the, the sacred, it's, it's governed by faith. And, and faith has nothing to do with reason. Now, this is not a biblical view of the world, but this is a common view of the world. This is what we assume. That spiritual truth, religious truth is for this very small part of life, the sacred part of life. It's for a very small group of people you know, religious truth is for one nation or people from one culture or one language group. So, you know, uh, if you speak Arabic, your religious truth is found through Islam. And if you speak uh, English, then your religious truth is found through Christianity because Christianity is basically a European English speaking. No, it's not. Never has been. Throughout the course of history, you count up all the Christians in the history of the world. English speakers are the minority. People with European heritage are the minority of the, the church globally throughout centuries. And yet we have these assumptions. You know, one nation, one religion. And so if you're not from that nation, then that religion has nothing to do with you. So if you're not European, Christianity has nothing for you. Those are the assumptions that we make. This religious truth is just for this tiny part of life, the sacred part. And it's only for people from one kind of cultural heritage. And even then, it's only good for a short season. Children need religious truth. Maybe adolescents need religious truth. You know, elementary school kids need to go to church so they can learn how to be good little boys and girls. And teenagers need to go to church so they can learn not to touch 
other people, right? No purpling, no blue and pink. And then, when, and then you kind of grow out of it. So if Jesus means anything, he only means, according to these assumptions, he only means something to very young people temporarily until they can grow out of it. And he only means something to people whose culture would make Jesus part of their religious truth. And he only means something in the areas of life that we call sacred. So, Steve, thanks for your prayer, but, man, that's secular stuff. Jesus has nothing to do with secular stuff. But here is Matthew telling us from the very beginning, this is the book of Genesis. This is the book in which God's plan for human flourishing in the entire world, on the whole planet, is being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jesus, who he is and what he does, matters for every person in every human endeavor forever. May his throne be established forever for as long as the sun. That's the language of Psalm 72. And Matthew is telling us, Jesus is that kind of guarantee for human flourishing. Jesus' coming is not something that matters just for elementary school kids so that we can make them behave. Jesus' coming is not something that just matters for English speakers. Jesus' coming is not something that just matters for spiritual people who have spiritual jobs like me. It matters for all of us because it's about human flourishing for the whole world forever. Do you need to rethink those assumptions? Have you been thinking of Jesus as someone who doesn't really matter to you because you're not a religious person? Have you been thinking of Jesus as someone who doesn't really matter to you because you've outgrown him? Or, or do, you, do you, you get it? You, you really do believe that Jesus is someone who matters for all of life and for every person you'll ever meet, including you? But somehow that commitment has grown weak and you need to reawaken it. This is the time to do it. If you've been assuming wrong things about Jesus because you've been assuming wrong things about the world, this is the time to rethink those assumptions. If you've been believing right things about Jesus, but that belief has been growing dim, this is a great time to reawaken everything that the Scripture says is true of Jesus. Jesus is God's guarantee for human flourishing. Jesus is also God's answer to human failure. Now, this is where we're going to have to unlearn an assumption. The assumption is, well, okay, so Jesus matters for the whole world. I get it. But he really matters. Who Jesus is and what he does really matters for good people, people who have been good religious people. Jesus matters for them. That's what Christianity really is about, right? 
And so good people should honor Jesus in every area of life because there's no sacred versus secular. And, and people who are good at being spiritual, you know, they can go on believing that Jesus matters for them. But really, I'm a failure and I'm kind of a spiritual underachiever, so there's no way Jesus matters for me, right? Wrong. Jesus is God's answer to human failure. Jesus doesn't just matter for people who get it right. Jesus doesn't just matter for people that you would think are good people. He matters for all of us. Notice how this genealogy talks about the failure of God's people, Israel, as embodied in her leaders. God's people have failed so horrendously, according to the story of the Bible, that even the best of leaders cannot reverse it. How do we know that? Well, there's a guy named Josiah mentioned in this genealogy, right? We start reading about David in verse 6, and then this long line of kings descended from him, and then we get down to verses 10 and 11, and Amos is the father of Josiah, and Josiah is the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. So we broke the pattern there, didn't we? At the time of the deportation to Babylon, what happened? God's People were conquered and, and made slaves by the Babylonian Empire. But wait a minute, wasn't Josiah a great king? Didn't we read that somewhere in this Bible? Yeah, we did. Josiah was an amazing king. And if you read kind of the summary of Josiah's reign, you find this. This is 2 Kings chapter 23. Verse 25, before him, Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Wait a minute, didn't Jesus say that was the greatest commandment? Yeah, there's never been a leader of God's people like this before. Josiah was, he was it. If he was from Britain, we would say he was the bee's knees, right? He is he's the bomb. He, he is all that. There was no king like him. He did all these things according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Better than all the kings that came before him, better than all the kings that came after him. But verse 26 says, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against his people, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh, had provoked the Lord. Manasseh was a king. He's mentioned in verse 10 of Matthew's genealogy. Anybody who knows the story, this just jumps out. Josiah was the best king we ever had. But our failure before God is so terrible that even the best of leaders can't overcome it. Even the best of leaders aren't immune to it. Read again verse 6. Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
We broke the pattern, didn't we? We added that little note, by the wife of Uriah. David, why are you having a son by the wife of another man? Oh, oh, I remember the story now. I remember David's failure. And in order to take Uriah's wife as his own, David commands that Uriah be sent to the front lines of the war and then commands that the army pull back and leave Uriah out there exposed to enemy fire all alone. So David commits murder to cover up the adultery he's already committed with another man's wife. This is our story. This is a story of the human race. The best of leaders can't undo the evil that other leaders do. And the best of leaders aren't immune to evil themselves. This is why the coming of Jesus is such good news. Jesus is God's answer to this pattern and tendency of human failure. You don't have to be good enough for Jesus to matter in your life. Well, what if, what if I'm just kind of a low-grade failure? What if I'm not one of these spectacular flame-out failures like Manasseh or David? Well, they're mentioned in here too. There are a couple of kings in verses 8 and 9, Uzziah and Jotham. The, the, the Old Testament tells us, you know, they were good kings. But nonetheless, there are a few ways they failed. They were kind of middle-of-the-road guys. They, they were just your classic underachiever. We had great hopes for their rule and their reign. And they fulfilled some of those hopes, but then they kind of let us down. Is that you? Is that you? Are you the person who's like, okay, I'm I've not been, you know, the paragon of wickedness. Nobody's ever going to parade me as chief proof of, of the failure of the human race as long as there are, you know, other people in our race worse than me. But I have been kind of a disappointment. People expected a lot of me, and I haven't lived up to it. Blessed is the man who never stops starting family worship. One of my seminary professors taught us that. Blessed is the man who never stops starting family worship. So if, if, if you're a Christian parent, mother or father, it's a reasonable expectation that you teach your kids about Christ about the scriptures. It's a reasonable expectation that that would be more than once a week, right? And that you wouldn't sort of farm it out to the professionals. That's okay with cleaning your teeth, right? You can just go to the dentist a couple times a year and they'll stay clean. Oh, wait a minute. No, you have a role in that too. Brushing. Don't get me started on flossing, right? We don't want to expose all the hypocrites in the room. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have you been flossing? Oh, yeah, yeah. For three minutes before I walked in here to get my teeth cleaned. Before that, not in the last six months. But the pattern is, if you want your teeth to stay clean, yeah, yeah you, need, you need some professional help with that, but you have a role that's daily. Similarly with training our kids. And so this kind of pattern of family worship, of talking with our children about the Scriptures as a regular part of our everyday life together, well, you don't floss every day, do you? You probably don't teach your kids about the Lord every day either. And so you feel like this kind of low-grade failure. Like I'm constantly not living up to what people might expect of me. Blessed is the man who never stops starting family worship. Blessed is the woman who says, even though my track record in this is imperfect, I'm going to start again. Don't stop starting. Because of Jesus, people who are low-grade failures, not spectacular flameouts, but just low-grade, consistently underachieving, consistently failing to be what Jesus has called us to be, even people like that can be forgiven by the work of Jesus. This list has people in it like David, people in it like Manasseh, People in it like Judah. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Oh, we broke the pattern again. By Tamar. Why are we missing her? Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Judah's sons died, and he promised that he would help her to find another husband. And he, he failed in that promise. He underachieved. He let her down. He was faithless to her. And she came up with a plan to have children. You can read about it in the book of Genesis if you want to. Her plan was unwise. But it was a desperate move inspired by Judah's failure. Jesus doesn't just matter for good people who kind of have it all together. The coming of Jesus is for a race that has failed. Some of us spectacularly, some of us in this kind of low-grade, consistent, underachieving way that might not stand out to anyone, but we know it. Jesus' coming is good news for you. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that because of Jesus there can be a new beginning, a new genesis, a starting over. And because of Jesus, you can never stop starting. You can start again and again and again and again. He will never run out of patience, forgiveness toward you. Not because you're that great, but because he is. Jesus is God's answer to our failure. There's one last thing we need to notice here about Jesus. And it has to do with this, this pattern being interrupted again. You know, that pattern of blank was the father of blank, and blank was the father of blank. And 
And we're getting down to the end of this list. And we read that verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Oh, we broke the pattern. It didn't say Joseph was the father of Jesus. It introduces Mary. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And it doesn't say Christ was the father of anyone. And the pattern gets broken again. And if we lived in Matthew's world, we would start weeping right now. If you're giving me a line of the kings through whom human flourishing is going to come and through whom all of the failure of God's people is going to be reversed, we do not want the line of the kings to be broken, ever. We don't want the succession from one generation to another to stop. We, we want the kingship to continue. We want the story to not end. So we should be weeping here, right? Because this is the last name. And Matthew would say to us, this is not a cause to weep. This is a cause for rejoicing. You don't need another name. Jesus is the final word. Jesus is God's final word. He's childless. There is no male heir to carry on the line. But you know what? We don't need any others. We won't need a replacement for Jesus. We won't need a supplement to add to Jesus. Why? Because he is not like anybody else who ever lived. Now, like everybody else who ever lived, he was born as a human baby. And he had a human mother. That's what verse 16 says. Joseph was the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. That word whom in Greek, yeah, we still keep studying our Greek. There are reasons for it. Here's one. That word whom in Greek is feminine and it's singular. Matthew is not saying that Jesus was born of Joseph and Mary. He would have used a plural word and it would have been masculine. This is a feminine singular Jesus was born of Mary and not of Joseph. He's like every human who ever lived. He has a human mother. He's born as a human baby, but he's unlike any other human being who ever lived. He has no human father. Who was his father? Well, you've got to keep reading the story. Verse 18 says the Holy Spirit caused Jesus' conception in Mary's womb. He is fathered by God himself in a way that's unlike anything any other person who lived on this planet has ever experienced. That's why he can be God's final word. He's not an empty guarantee that one day human flourishing will be fulfilled forever. He's not a temporary answer to your failure or mine. He is the final word. Here's the assumption you and I have to unlearn. The assumption is that even if we trust Jesus, we're going to need somebody or something to fill in the gaps that Jesus missed. 
the places in life that he can't reach, the things he didn't cover. So who Jesus is and what he does matters for me. It matters for all of life, and it matters a whole lot, but there's still some little cracks that he didn't do enough. And so I got to fill those in by some kind of relationship. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's friendship. I got to fill in that gap by having the right relationships or with, with, with money. Because money can take a whole lot of anxieties out of my life. And Jesus, he has something to do with my anxiety, but, but there's a piece of that that he's not enough to cover. So I got to fill that in somehow. Or my career, because really I got to produce more, I got to achieve more, I got to earn more, whether it's to impress friends or to satisfy my father figure who always told me I wouldn't amount to anything, so I got to prove him wrong. Or whether I'm in competition with that other guy who was voted most likely to succeed in my senior class and I'm still out to prove to people with braces and pimples, 18-year-olds that I haven't seen in 35 years, that I will make something of myself. I, Jesus, you mean a lot to me, but you just can't fix that. I got to fill it by well, if I'm, if I'm younger than 35, by having these awesome experiences and traveling the world. Because in the age of social media, the greatest sin is being ordinary. Whatever you do, don't live an ordinary life. So Jesus can take care of a whole lot of things in your life, but you got to cram in some extraordinary, awesome stuff to really be a fulfilled person. That assumption is dead wrong. Jesus is God's final word to you. You don't need anybody or anything else. Who Jesus is and what he does matters, even for people who live ordinary lives and don't seem to do enough or have enough or be enough. I don't have any tattoos. I think I would like to have an earring. I also think it would hurt. I'm a little afraid. Right? Senior year of high school, my buddy heated up a, don't do this at home, right? Got a cigarette lighter and heated up a, um, unbent a, a paper clip, heated up the end of it, rubbed it on some rocks to get the sharp, the end nice and sharp, and then he goes, and next day he's got an earring. I don't have that kind of courage. <laughs> right? Or that much disinfectant sitting around the house. That's kind of ordinary. I'm just this middle-aged white guy who wears khakis and a bow tie. I don't have any skinny jeans. I don't wear cool little glasses or a fedora. Is that okay? Is it all right? I published one book. It sold maybe 300 copies. I bought 150 of them. <laughs> Is that okay? Am I enough? 
Are we enough? Cool enough? Achieved enough? Accomplished enough? Earned enough? What joy to open the New Testament and hear that there can be a new genesis, a new beginning. And the story starts with the birth of someone utterly unique who had no human father, but who knows us well enough because he lived a human life with us and for us. And to begin this story to say, he is enough. And if you know him, you know God's final word. You you don't need to earn anything else to impress anyone. Rest in Jesus. He is enough. You don't need to achieve anything else to satisfy anybody. Rest in Jesus. He is enough. My assumption was that I needed Jesus plus some other things. Well, unlearn that assumption. Jesus is God's answer to everything that you need even if you're just an ordinary person. He is not. He is enough.